The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, uh, we're going to talk this morning about the subject of free will. Now, this is a subject that everybody agrees on, right? <laughs> no, not really. Like, you know, so many subjects, uh, you got two sides to everything. So, this is a controversial topic. Um, I don't think it should be, but it is. So, what I want to start with this morning is by talking about the human will, apart from what the Bible has to say. Let's just talk about human will and making decisions. If somebody was to ask you if man has a free will, how would you answer them? I mean, the will of man is his power to choose between alternatives. Volition. It's human decision. No one denies that man has a will. That is, the faculty of choosing what he wishes to say, what he wishes to do, where he wishes to go. So, you are free to make choices. But are your choices free? That's the question. See, your power to decide between alternatives is not free from all influence. And that's what, you know, the problem with free will. People say, well, you have free will. Free will would be a decision you make in a vacuum with no influence whatsoever. That's impossible. You're loaded with influences. You make choices based on your understanding, on your feelings, on your likes, on your dislikes, your appetites. In other words, your will is not free from how you think. Your choices are determined by your own character. Now, the will, as we said, is the faculty of choice. It's the immediate cause of all action. You think about something, and then you do it. But in every act of the will, there's a preference. The desiring of one thing rather than another. To will is to choose, and to choose is decide between two or more alternatives. But there's something that influences your choices. The will is not causative, because something causes it to choose. Therefore, that something must be the causative agent. Now, what is it that determines your will? If the will is not causative, then what is it that causes you to make a choice? Let's say that your boss comes to you and he says, you're going to California. It's not up for discussion. You don't have a choice. You're going to California. Do you have a choice? Sure, you always have a choice. What are your choices? I can quit my job. I could get fired. Now, what if you're in the military and your boss comes to you? You still have a choice. You can go to the brig or you can go to California, right? So you have a choice. What determines that choice? Well, you say, I kind of like to eat. I have a family. I have a mortgage. Um, maybe I should go to California. All right? So there's a lot of things influencing that choice. Well, let's say your boss comes to you and says, you're going to California. Would you like to fly or drive? So now he's giving you a choice. You always had choices, but now you have more choices. And so, what determines the option that you choose? 
Well, what determines your choice is the strongest motive power which is brought to bear upon it. With one, it'll be the logic of reason. Man, that's a four-hour, I mean, a four-day drive. It's a five-hour flight. I'm going to fly, no doubt, you know. But somebody else, maybe it's emotion. I don't really like flying. It's kind of scary, you know, so I'm not going to fly. I'll drive. All right, so you have these things bearing on you, and you have to make choices based on the influences that you and your impulses, your desires, what you think causes you to will. Whichever of these presents the strongest motive power and exerts the greatest influence upon you, that impels you to act. In other words, the action of the will is determined by the mind, the thinking. The will is not free. Luther taught this. The will is in bondage to the heart, your mind, how you think. I think a certain way. I'm not going to act on a certain way. I'm not going to will something when I think that's crazy. I'm I'm totally against that. So our choices are determined by our desires. And when we have conflicting desires, whichever one is the greatest at the time of the decision, that's the one I choose. Let's say that I want to lose a few pounds. So my desire is to lose some weight. So I will to go on a diet. I've made that choice. I'm going on a diet. So let's say we go over to a friend's house and they bring out a cherry pie. Okay, which is my favorite dessert in the whole world. Okay, just love pies. Cherry's probably the top. All right. Do I eat a piece of pie or do I stick to my diet? Is my will free to choose? Well, just as I said, when you have conflicting desires, whichever desire is the greatest at the time of the decision is the desire you choose. I want to lose weight, and I've decided to go on a diet, but right now my desire for pie is stronger than my desire to diet. You ever been there? Uh Uh-huh. So what I am doing, I'm going against my will. Wait a minute. My will says I'm dieting. I'm going against my will to lose weight, to diet, and I'm going to eat pie. Though we have the the ability to make a decision, I'm going to diet. We don't always have the power to carry out our purpose. Okay? So people want to argue free will. The will doesn't have power in many instances. All right? Will may devise a course of action. I decided to lose weight. But will has no power to execute that intention, you know, when something, a stronger influence comes to bear on it. So we could ask, what causes a teenager to take drugs? What does? Your mind, your thinking determines your choice. That's what we said. The Bible tells us that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. So if you desire to honor and obey your parents, as these teens obviously do, right? And if you believe that drugs are wrong, like these teens obviously do, you'll say no to drugs, right? No, I'm not going to do that. But if you're undecided, eh, I don't really know drugs, I don't know if it's bad or not, and these friends I really want to impress, I really like these people, I want to kind of get in with them, then you might say yes. See, the condition of our heart will determine our choices. Jonathan Edwards defined the will as the mind choosing. And if your mind is not sure on something, it can be swayed. Now, by saying that your will is free, as I said, you're certainly 
don't mean that it determines the course of your life. Because how many of your decisions, your acts of the will are thwarted? You make a decision. I like my diet. Okay, You make a decision to do something, but it doesn't work out. You may choose to be a millionaire, but you don't have the ability to carry that out. You may choose to be a scholar, but maybe bad health, unstable home, finances may frustrate your will. You may choose to go on a vacation. An automobile accident may put you in the hospital instead of a vacation. Okay, So you don't always have the power to carry out the things you do will. So I hope you see that man does not have a free will. He has a will. He makes choices. I'm just saying it is never free because there's always outside influences to come to bear. A free will would be a will that is totally uninfluenced in his choices. We have a will and we make choices, but the will is not free. Something is always influencing our choices. That's why Proverbs says, guard your heart above everything else you do. Your mind, your thinking. Because it will determine the kind of life you live. Now, when we talk about free will, it's usually in the context of man's freedom to make choices apart from God's influence. That's the big argument in churchianity. Man has a free will to do this, or man has a free will to do that. And by and far, the majority of the church today believes that a lost person has a free will, right? Now, the church during the days of the Reformation held that man had no free will. In the 18th century, Campbell, a Scottish preacher, was actually excommunicated from the church for teaching man had a free will. The church today, though, is man-centered. They want to be able to be the determiner of their own destiny. And people today view free will as a sacred right that God dare not violate. Dare not violate. It is almost a universal belief today that man has a free will that God will not, yea, cannot violate. God just can't do that. Now, I want to play a short little movie clip for you here from the movie Bruce Almighty. Okay, in Bruce Almighty, Morgan Freeman is God, and uh, Jim Carrey, he's giving Jim Carrey the right to be God for a little while, so he's explaining to him, you know, what what it's like to be God, and what the rules are of being God. Sound. Oh, man. Yeah. Crank it up. Let's try this again.
See, that's the whole thing. I mean, you can't tell anybody. He says, I'm God. All right, and the second rule, and this is, this is the movies, okay? This is not a Christian movie. This is just how people think. All people have this idea. You just don't mess with free will. Let me keep playing this. Oh, we lost the sound again? Okay, never mind. We're done with that. <laughs> you get the point, all right? I don't, like I said, technical difficulties. This is a day for it, all right? <clears throat> so, yeah, it's just uh, it's one of those things that, like I said, it's almost a universal belief today that man has a free will that God just dare not violate. But is that what the Bible teaches? Most of churchianity, as I said, believes it. But if you actually read your Bible, you will see that God is sovereign over all things, including the will of men. And I don't say that to be mean or judgy, but most people don't read their Bibles. Most people go to church, and they hear what someone says, and they just buy whatever they're told, and they don't ever look it up, don't ever read their Bible. Most people have never read their whole Bible. And so they have this idea that, like I said, is ingrained in you, that you have free will, God can't violate it, God does, you know, He just has limitations on Him. Well, let's look at a few texts that I think demonstrate God's sovereignty over the will of man. Exodus 34, 23. Three times a year shall all your males appear before Yahweh, God, the God of Israel. So three times during the year, all Jewish males were required by Yahweh to appear at the temple. That was Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They're called the Pilgrim Feast because they make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at that time. Okay? Everybody comes to Jerusalem. Now, their traveling away from their homes wasn't like us leaving our homes. Okay? Many of us have security systems, or we got neighbors, we got cops in the area, we got, you know, we don't really worry when we leave our homes. But they're leaving their home, the males, going to Jerusalem, and it was a regular thing on these three feasts, and what about the neighbors that liked their property? You know, their wives and children were there, and they're vulnerable. And the interesting thing is a lot of their neighbors, they had driven out of the land that they're in. So they're like, hey, we go, and what happens if they come and take over our property? So God says in the next verse, I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before Yahweh, your God, three times in the year. So he says, I'll cast out the nations before you. I'll enlarge your borders. So Yahweh promises them that after the expulsion of the Canaanites, he's going to enlarge the borders of Israel. Then he says this, no one shall covet your land when you come up to worship me. How can he say that? How does he know that nobody will covet their land. That's a big statement, isn't it? Nobody will covet your... Nobody will want your stuff. Nobody will desire your stuff when you're gone. That's a big promise. God can make that because He's sovereign over all things, including the desire of men. Now, the word for covet here is from the Hebrew word hamod. And it means to delight in, to desire. This word is only used 23 times in the Tanakh. It's the same word used in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. It's used of Eve in Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, 
same word, hamod, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Her desire caused her to disobey. Yahweh told the Israelites, no one would desire their land when they're away worshiping Him. If they didn't desire it, they certainly are not going to invade it. Right? They don't have to worry about that. They don't even want that. Why would they come? Now, Micah uses the word hamod when talking about wicked men. He says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet the fields and they seize them. People, this is what men do. They covet, they desire something, and they take it. But Yahweh says, what is natural for wicked men to do will not happen when you come up to worship me. Because nobody is going to covet your land. Nobody's going to desire your things, your wife, your children, your land, your stocks. When you come to worship me, you just come worship and I'll take care of everything else. That tells me that God is sovereign over the will, the desires, the thoughts of men. John Gill, commenting on no one shall covet your land, writes this. Though it is a desirable land, and their neighbors, and especially the old inhabitants of it, envied the happiness of the Israelites, and could not but wish it was their possession, yet God, who has the hearts of all men in His hands, and can direct their thoughts, and turn the inclinations of their minds, and influence their affections, and enlarge and engage them with other objects, promises that they would not think of an invasion of them, or have their minds and their desires and affections of their hearts in the least turned that way at these seasons, whatever they might have at other times. In other words, they might lust after those lands some other times, but they're not going to do it now. Nobody will do it. Not only will the neighbors not invade them, they won't even think of doing it. Because Yahweh will supernaturally control their thinking. Now the Scriptures often say, often tell us of God's control over the thinking of man. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever He will. Now, the heart to the Hebrew, as we said, is the thinking process. His thinking. So here we see that Yahweh controls the thoughts of the king. Now, the truth of God's sovereignty over the hearts of all people is taught here by the strongest illustration he could get. And that's control over the most absolute of all wills, the king's will. Alright? In Solomon's time, the king was an absolute monarch. Now, there was no legislature to pass laws that he didn't like, oh, we're going to do this, or there was no Supreme Court to restrain the actions of the king. The king did what he wanted. His word was the last word. His authority over his realm was unconditional. It was unrestrained. Yet this verse teaches that Yahweh controls the heart of the most powerful monarch on earth as easily as the farmer directs the flow of water in his irrigation canal. I remember as a young Christian came across this verse and I thought, that's amazing. God controls the king's heart. I stopped right there. That's it. He got the king, everybody else he has to leave alone. The kings don't have free will, but everybody else does. Does that make any sense? See, I didn't understand the illustration. He's using the strongest illustration. We start with the king. If God controls the king's heart, he controls everybody's heart. 
everyone. Now, some may object to this and say, well, doesn't this make man a puppet? Let me ask you this. Do you feel like a puppet? Has anybody yanked your strings lately? You know, this morning when I got up, I went down to the kitchen and I went to make some coffee. And just as I reached for the coffee maker, I felt this pull and I got dragged over to my office and I didn't get to get coffee. So it must have not been God's will to make, have me have coffee. No, that didn't happen. I picked out what I would wear. I did this stuff. I, I didn't feel any pull of any strings anywhere. Did any of you come here today because you were dragged? Apart from you kids. <laughs> no, you didn't get up and say, I'm going to lay around the house today. I'm not going to. All of a sudden, you just felt, you know, you were jerked out into your car, and next thing you know, you were here. No, you came here because you wanted to. You're not here because you didn't want to be here, okay? It wasn't like you wanted to come and you were heading for the door and these strings jerked you back. No, you do what you want because you want to. So this puppet argument is just ridiculous, okay? Nobody has any strings attached. You do what you want to do. So how does God sovereignly control us if we do what we want to do? I don't know. But the Bible says He does. So I believe that, okay? That's how big our God is. He gets accomplished what He wants to in your life even though you're making free choices. Okay? You're making those choices. Again, your will is not free, but you're making choices. You're, you're acting on volition. Alright? <laughs> Gotta be kidding me. Restart your computer. Windows needs to update. <laughs> Listen. Proverbs 16.7. This was... This has been one of my favorite verses for a long time. When a man's ways please Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. People, this is a comforting verse. This is an amazing verse. Here's what you have to do. You don't have to run around trying to please your enemies, trying to somehow reconcile, fix these things when people don't like you. You just have to worry about pleasing the Lord. When you please God, He makes your enemies be at peace. How does he do that? Because he controls the heart. You know, it's amazing. Joseph, you know, he gets to prison and, the, you know, the prisoner, the guards of the prison, wow, we really like this guy. You know? How? Because God's in control. Alright? Genesis 35.5 As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around about them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. A terror from God came upon them. So what did they do? They didn't pursue. So did these people have free will to pursue Israel? No, their will wasn't free because they were terrified. So they're not going to go do what they're terrified to do. Alright? 2 Chronicles 17.10 And the fear of Yahweh fell upon the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Yahweh said, you're not warring against Jehoshaphat. He protected his people and he put fear in the hearts of these men to stay away. Yahweh comforts Paul with these words in Acts 18.10. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. 
That's pretty cool to hear from Yahweh. But how did Yahweh know no one would do that? He knew because He controls the situation. Don't you understand? He can't say these things if He's not controlling things. <clears throat> the story of Abraham. Abraham sojourned to Gerar. And when he's in Gerar, he told people, he told Sarah, when we get there, Sarah, his 90-year-old wife who was so hot at 90, that he was afraid, you know, everywhere he went, tell him you're my sister, okay? So he goes to Gerar and he says, tell him you're my sister, because I don't want him 90 years old and he's worried about her being so hot that he knows somebody's going to come and take her. Especially, he's talking about people in authority. Well, Abimelech, the king, says, that 90-year-old woman is really hot. Go get her for me. So he takes her. And Yahweh says this, Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. I kept you from sinning against me, king. Remember, king's heart's in the hand of the Lord. I did not let you touch her. Now let me ask you this. Did Abimelech have free will to have sex with Sarah? No. Listen, he did not. He obviously wanted her. He took her. He took her and brought her into his house. But he didn't touch her because he said, no, you're not going to. To say that man has free will is not to understand the Scriptures. God controls the heart. Look at Revelation 17, 16 and 17. And the ten horns that you saw, they, are the be- they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Why will they do that? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose. God put in their hearts to give their kingdom to the beast. God inclines men to fulfill that which He has ordained and perform that which He has foreordained. Now someone is bound to ask, you're thinking, and I'm sure you are, if God controls all things and has determined in advance everything that happens, doesn't that make God responsible for sin? Well, let me just tell you, no, it does not. Okay? Psalm 145.17 says, Yahweh is righteous in all His ways. Now, try to follow with me here, okay? I'm going <clears> to... <throat> I know it's a little bit <laughs> hard to grasp sometimes, alright? God is the cause of everything, including sin. But God is not responsible for sin because responsibility attaches to motives an intention of the one committing the act. Now, if you're shocked when I said God's the cause of sin, let me ask you a question. What was the greatest sin ever committed by mankind? Hmm? The crucifixion of Christ. Men took the Son of God after watching Him do miracles for three years, heal people, raise the dead, feed them, do it. They, they, their result was, their decision was, let's kill him. Was that sin? Did God have any say in what happened there? Yeah, we just finished John. Okay, this, Acts 
2.23 says, This Yeshua delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned this out. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I believe the Bible teaches that God is the cause of sin, but He is not the author. God is the cause... God's the cause of this sermon, okay? So if you don't like you blame it on Him. Because He's the cause of everything. But He's not the author. I'm the author. I'm responsible for this message. God is not responsible for sin, but He is the cause. Let me look at some Scripture and see if we can, see if we can understand this. All right? 2 Samuel 16.22 So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Absalom had a coup, overthrew his David. David left the city. He gets David's concubines together and he sleeps with them. Just to defile his father's bed and an incestuous union. This is a detestable sin. He's basically saying, I'm in charge. These are mine now. Yet God says this was his work. Notice carefully what God said to David earlier. 2 Samuel 12, 11-12. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. David committed sin. All right? He took Bathsheba. He had sex with her. He killed her husband to try to cover it up. All right? God says, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to judge you for this. I'm going to raise up evil out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Everyone's going to know what's happening here. For you did it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And this is exactly what Absalom does. Yahweh said he's going to judge David for his sin by raising up evil from his own house. Yahweh was the cause of Absalom's sin, but he was not responsible because Absalom did it out of his own wicked heart. He wanted to do that. Now Jeremiah declared that every cruelty that the Chaldeans exercised against Judah was God's work. Let's get a few verses in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.15 For behold, I am calling, this is Yahweh speaking, all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares Yahweh, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all his walls, and around against all the cities of Judah. Goes on in chapter 7, Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did in Shiloh. Goes on in chapter 50, verse 25, Yahweh has opened his armory and brought out the weapons of his wrath, for the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, has a work to do in the land of the Chaldeans. Now the Chaldeans came in and pillaged and destroyed Judah, and God said, that's my work. Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of the Lord, in Jeremiah 25, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares Yahweh, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. This is a pagan king. I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. God's judging Israel. And He says, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. He calls Assyria the rod of His anger. In Isaiah 10.5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff of... 
The staff in their hands is my fury. Assyria was one of the most wicked nations ever to exist. Cruelly murdering and torturing people, and God says, they're my rod. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute about the story of Job. Okay, this whole chapter was read earlier. I know you're familiar with it. It says, Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. Now, here's what you have to understand. In the Tanakh, Satan is not a bad guy. Okay, he's not evil. He's not a bad guy. He's just an adversary. All right. Who fears God and turns away from evil. So Yahweh says, hey, you checked out Job? Pretty good guy. And Satan answered Yahweh and said, does Job fear you for no reason? Oh, he loves you because you're just so good to him. You give him everything. Have, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed his work, the work of his hands and possession and increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. He just loves you because you give him stuff. Take that stuff away and see what happens. All right? Take it away and see if he'll curse you to your face. So Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. Now you know the story. Job experienced great trials. The Sabaeans took his livestock. They killed his servants. Fire fell from heaven and burned up his sheep and his servants. The Chaldeans came, took his cannibals, killed his servants. A great wind destroyed his children's home, killing them. One of these things would just devastate us. As soon as one messenger came, another one came. And it's like everything he had collapsed. All his wealth, all his securities, all his annuities, 401k, everything fell apart. His kids all died. What's Job's response to all this? Did he curse the Sabaeans? Does he curse the Chaldeans? Does he blame Satan for all his problems? You know, you go to most churches today, you will hear more about Satan than you will about Yahweh or Yeshua. Because he's involved in everything, they think. He does everything. Well, look what Job's response was. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. These are expressions of grief. He fell on the ground and he worshipped. Worship means to give worth. He's giving worth to God. God, it's okay. And he says, Naked came I forth from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. So, did, who did Job say took his stuff away? Who took his stuff? Yahweh! Oh boy, you say that today and some charismaticals have a paroxysm. They'll go crazy. No, God doesn't do that kind of stuff. He only, well look at Job, says Yahweh took it away. He doesn't blame anybody else. The Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, a bad storm. He says Yahweh did this. He understood the sovereign control of God over everything that happened. Now, what was Yahweh's purpose in what happened to Job? Well, God's purpose was to exercise the patience of His servant by calamity. Satan endeavors to drive him to desperation. 
The Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, they were just after it for themselves. Hey, we can get some more property here. We can go in and take all this guy's stuff. Let's go do that. So what the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans did to Job was sin, but God's in control. Job knew that. God had decreed that they should perform the acts they did, but in the actual perpetration of their deeds, they were justly guilty because their own purpose in doing them was evil. God does not produce the sinful dispositions of any of His creatures, though He does restrain and direct them for the accomplishment of His own purposes. Hence, he's neither the author nor the approver of sin. Now, this this distinction was expressed by Augustine back in the 5th century. He said that men's sin proceeds from themselves. That in sinning, they perform this or that action is from the power of God who divideth the darkness according to his pleasure. See, what most people mean when they talk about free will is the idea that man, by his nature, is perfectly able to choose good or evil. God's got no part in it. It's just up to man. That simply is not true. The human will and the whole of human nature is bent to evil continually. Jeremiah asks the question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. See, man... Natural man needs a supernatural transformation of their will in order to ever choose God. Now, many assert that the human will makes the ultimate choice, the choice over life or death. You know, it's just up to man. He just decides one day, I think I'll believe in God. They say the will, the will of man is altogether free to choose eternal life offered by Yeshua or to reject it. It said that God will give a new heart to anybody who chooses to have one. Now, there is no question that receiving Yeshua is an act of the human will. But what do we say causes the will to act? The thinking, right? It's determined by our thinking. What is wrong with the human heart? Genesis 6.5 Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The human heart is wicked. It is evil. So how does that which is evil choose good? That's a violation. You know, I really think this is terrible, but I'm going to choose it. It doesn't work that way. Your will is servant to your heart, and your heart is evil. Romans 3.10-12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. I wonder what the purpose of a seeker-sensitive church is. If nobody seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does what is good. No, not even one. No power forces man to sin contrary to his will but the descendants of Adam are so evil that they always choose evil. Man can't choose God because he's dead to spiritual things. He's not interested in spiritual things. He doesn't care. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're folly to him. 
Watch, he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now notice carefully, it says the natural person doesn't accept the things of God. Now, that would include the Word of God, wouldn't it? That's part of the, the, the person. They don't believe it. They don't accept it. They don't want anything to do with it. All right? He is not able to understand it. Now, who is this natural man? What does he mean by natural man? The word natural comes from the Greek word sukakos. And Jude uses the same Greek word in verse 19. He says, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now, worldly people here and natural person, they're the same word. It's the word sukakos. So, the worldly person is the one who is devoid of the Spirit. So, the natural man is a man devoid. He doesn't have the Spirit of God. He's just a natural man. So he doesn't accept the things of God because he needs the Spirit first. Without the Spirit of God doing something first, he can't accept those things. He has no ability to understand and discern the things of God. Now, two things are true of the natural man. First of all, he does not, it says, accept the things of the Spirit. The word used here for accept is the word used for receiving guests into your home. So he says his attitude towards spiritual things is like your attitude toward unwanted guests in your home. This man doesn't welcome the things of the Spirit because they're foolish to him. And I think you, if you can look back, yeah, a lot of us can remember that time when I thought things were just ridiculous, stupid. I just laughed at a lot of that stuff. But now I believe. Why? Because the Lord changed my heart. Secondly, the natural man is not able to understand the things of the Spirit. He can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. And the word discern here is a legal term that was used for preliminary hearing and it came to mean scrutinize, examine, or make a judgment. The natural person has no capacity to spiritually evaluate these things because he doesn't have the Spirit of God. The natural man is like any one of us sitting here trying to pick up a radio station without a receiver. There's radio waves all over the place. And if I got a receiver, I could play all kinds of channels for you. None of you can pick them up now. I hope not. Okay? You don't have the right equipment. And the same thing, the natural one doesn't have the equipment. He doesn't have the Spirit of God, so things of the Spirit are foolishness to him. But the Bible also taught, teaches us that the natural man, the man without the Spirit, is dead. Okay? Ephesians 2, 1 and verse 5 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, God's the one who made us alive. By grace you have been saved. So Paul says in verse 1, you were dead. Then he says in verse 5, we were dead. Everybody was dead. The death referred to here is spiritual death, which is separation from God, who is life. Every human being born is born dead, born separated from God. Now, Dr. John Kerrigan, in his commentary on Ephesians, writes this. Dead, but not totally. Does that make sense to anybody? Not, that's like the line from Princess Bride. Mostly dead is somewhat alive. Okay? Well, that's right. Mostly dead is someone alive, so if you're mostly dead, what are you? You're alive. It's an absolute. You either are or you're not. You don't go to people that are very sick and say, he's mostly dead. No, they're alive. And until they die, they're considered to be alive. And once, they de once they're dead, there's no more life in them. 
partially dead is alive. So you're either dead or you're alive. It's an absolute. There's no shades of this. Oh, he's mostly dead. No, he's not mostly dead. Luther said this, it is not in your power to turn to God. If you think that it's in your power to turn to God, you've missed the whole point of the Reformation and don't understand total depravity. It is not in your power to turn to God. You're a sinner. You're dead. You're eaten up with corruption. He had a good view of mankind, didn't he? It's not in your power. You just don't have that power to turn to God. Because your heart is evil. Because you're dead. He goes on, every choice of yours is evil and not good. So how can we turn to Him who is light, righteousness, holy, and good? It's not in man's will to turn to God. But God's grace must transform the sinner before he'll ever turn to God. And unless God changes the heart, unless God creates a spirit within him, gives us His Spirit, man will not choose to believe in Yeshua and receive eternal life from Him. A new heart has to be given before a man can believe. Now the church has it backwards today. We believe and then God gives us a new heart. How do dead people believe? I mean, dead people don't have a thought process, okay? They're dead. So they don't believe, I think I'll will myself a life, to lie, to be alive. No, you're dead. You have no thoughts and nothing. All right, something has to happen to the dead person. That's why Yeshua comes to Lazarus' grave and He calls out, Lazarus, come forth! And He comes out of the grave. He raised Him from the dead. That's what has to happen. We need a spiritual resurrection. God has to give life to our dead, cold hearts. A new heart has to be given so man can believe. Or else the human will is hopelessly enslaved to the evil human nature. Salvation is of the Lord. That was the whole theme of the Reformation. It's all about God. It's not about us. Look at John 1, 12-13. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word that John uses here for man is andros, which speaks of male. It's not the genetic term for mankind. And this word probably would best be translated here as husband. And it probably refers to the father's authority in deciding to have a child. So what he's saying here, spiritual life doesn't come because of a human decision. You don't decide to be alive. Your will is not responsible for your coming into the world. Just as your will is not responsible for the new birth. You didn't decide. Someone else decided to have a child. And you were that product. And the same thing with the new birth. You don't decide, I think I'll be born again. No, you have to be given life. You have to be born again. And then you can choose. You will choose. God. Let's look at a couple of verses in John 6. Yeshua says, All the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, if you're an Arminian and you believe that man comes to Yeshua by his own free will, I beg you to examine this chapter, to pray over this chapter, to study this chapter. John chapter 6 decimates the Arminian view. It totally destroys it. This is all about sovereignty. And that's the Lord keeps saying, oh, you can't come. These guys, he's preaching the gospel and they're like, oh, we don't, don't worry, you can't come. 
He actually, Yeshua's evangelism is interesting. In the end of this chapter, he's got these people following him and he, they just don't like what he's saying. And he goes, let me tell you guys something. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, ah. Oh. And they go away. You know, he's not trying to, you know, say things that are comfortable for them so they'll come along his side. He's literally trying to chase them away because, listen, you can't come if you're not called. And when Yeshua says, all the Father gives me will come to me, he is saying, though many of you reject me, all that have been called by my Father will come and believe in me. Now, how can Yeshua be sure that those who the Father has given him will come? What if their will is not to come to the Son? Well, verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. All right? Now, he says, no one can come to me. Now, what's important here in this context is back in verse 35, Yeshua connected coming to him to believing in him. So let's look at that verse 35. Yeshua said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Okay? So coming to Yeshua, believing in Yeshua, they're synonymous concepts. These are parallel terms. Coming to Christ is the same as believing in Christ and vice versa. This is very important in understanding this text. So in verse 44, Yeshua is literally saying, no one can believe in me. Nobody. Unless the Father who sent me draws it. So it's just not up to your free will to just, I just decide to believe in the Lord. No, you just can't do that. Now he says, unless the Father draws him, and some have tried to interpret the word draw here as call or invite. We've been over this a lot of time. This is not what helkuo means. It means to draw by irresistible superiority. Look up the eight times this word is used in the New Testament. It's used of drawing a sword, dragging people to court, dragging a net full of fish in. None of that's done by saying, please come. You know, they say, I've heard people translate draws as woo. God woos. I don't even know what woo is, okay? I don't really understand a wooing concept, okay? But this is grabbing someone and drawing them, all right? So that's what this means. And some people go so far as to say that God invites everybody equally and at all times, and they would say that the Father draws everybody and everybody can choose to come or not. So back again to that free will. But this view distorts the text. If this is all that Yeshua is trying to say, His words don't make any sense in this context of the discussion here. His words only make sense if the implication is that His objectors may not have been drawn. There are three things I want to point out here. First of all, the phrase, no one. Alright? This is a universal negative. Nobody can come. Jews or Gentiles, none of you can come unless. No one can come to me. This has to do with the ability of man. Yeshua is saying, no one, neither Jew or Gentile, has the ability to come to me unless. Now, this word is a necessary condition. Yeshua said that the necessary condition for someone coming to Him was God giving it to them. What does God give them? Ability. Simply put, God gives man the ability to come to Christ. Man in his own does not have the ability because his will is not free. Now, the issue of free will was the main issue in the Reformation. All right? Martin Luther said that only Erasmus knew what was the real issue in the Reformation. And it was the issue of the bondage of the will. 
Erasmus was Europe's most famous philosopher, and he and Luther debated this question of whether or not the human creature has freedom to accept or refuse divine grace. So this has been going on for a long time. And the debate was not new to them because in the 5th century, Augustine and Pelagius debated the same issue. And Pelagius' view was condemned by the Council of Ephesus in 431. Luther taught that man, because of the fall, was so bound by sin that he could not of himself do anything to avail himself to get out of the situation, but God had to do it. So, the Reformation taught salvation was of the Lord. It's of God. And that's no wonder that Martin Luther wrote a book entitled The Bondage of the Will, in which he considered one of his most important treaties. He taught the will is not free, it's bound by the heart. It's in bondage to an evil human nature. And those who extol the free will as a great force, they're really clinging to a root of pride. It's my choice. Man is fallen in sin. He is utterly hopeless and utterly helpless. The will of man offers no hope. It was the will choosing the forbidden fruit that brought us into this misery. The powerful grace of God is the only thing that will get us deliverance. Now, some are going to ask, why do we need to teach this? I mean, why teach that man has no free will? It just upsets people. People like their free will. They want to think they can make the choice in, their, in and of themselves. It's up to them. You know, God has done what He can do, and He just stands by and watches. He can't do anything else. And since this is so despised, why, why even teach it? Because a lot of people have this view, you, you shouldn't teach things that upset people. No, it never stopped me before, but, you know, I just, I just am of the view that if it's in the Bible, we should teach it, okay? But let me, let me share with you John Calvin's view, because I just think Calvin nails this. He's talking in this text about predestination, but predestination of free will, this is all one argument, okay? You, you don't have a free will because God predestines who comes to Him. Well, Calvin's answer to why teach this is this. The Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which is nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. In other words, that God didn't leave anything out of the Bible that you need. Okay? And He didn't teach you anything you don't need. Okay? That's what He's saying. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about the predestination in Scripture. You know, we've got to be careful saying that lest we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God, or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what it is in any way profitable to suppress. Can you follow them? Well, you know, the Holy Spirit's teaching us this. If we're saying we shouldn't be saying it, then you're saying, God messed up. Calvin goes on to say, but for those who are so cautious or fearful, that they desire to bury predestination in order not to disturb weak souls, with what color will they cloak their arrogance when they accuse God of indirectly of stupid thoughtlessness? In other words, yeah, God was pretty dumb to put that in there because it causes people to stumble. It hurts people. It confuses people. God shouldn't have put that in. That's what people are saying. As if He had not foreseen the peril they feel they now wisely met. Whoa, I wish God would have saw this like I do. He wouldn't have done that. Whoever then heaps odium on the doctrine of predestination openly reproaches God 
as if he had unadvisedly let slip something hurtful to the church. People, if it's in the Bible, God wants it known. And Bereans, I think we understand that truth matters. Truth matters. It's important. If God taught it, we need to understand it. And we're to teach the truth of the Bible no matter where that truth might lead or what that truth might be. Because it offends people doesn't mean we have to stay away from it if we're trying to teach people. Now, it depends on your motive and what you're trying to do. If you're trying to grow a big church, yeah, don't teach the Bible. That's not going to work for you. Because no matter what doctrine you teach, somebody will get mad. But if you just smile and tell everybody God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life, He wants the best for you, He wants you to prosper, He wants you to be rich, He wants you to be happy, He wants you to be healthy, yeah, that's great. Everybody can leave with a smile on their face and you don't have to work about studying. But if you're going to teach the Bible, like I said, I don't care what doctrine you pick, somebody's going to get offended, okay? And somebody's not going to be happy, somebody's going to leave. So you've got to be very careful, but people, we're not about that. I, I think we care about the truth, and that's why we have to know it. Even though, yes, the majority of churchianity believes the man has a free will. Talk to them. Show them some scriptures. Again, I, I really believe if people would just read their Bible, they'd have a different view on God and themselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to spend some time in your word, Lord. I know this is a controversial subject. I know it's not a topic accepted by many, but I just pray that you would give each person that has the opportunity to hear this the spirit of a Berean. They'd not accept, they'd not reject, but they'd study. Is this truly what the Bible teaches? Is God in control? Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Mm-hmm.